When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and it's my good fortune to be joined today by Dr. Caroline Grego. She is Assistant Professor of History at Queen's University of Charlotte and the author of Hurricane Jim Crow, How the Great Sea Island Storm of 1893 Shaped the Low Country South. It comes out today from University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Grego, welcome to the show, and, and congrats on this brilliant and beautifully written book. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here today. So Mike Davis passed away last month, and, and I thought of you, and I thought of this book. And, and in, in your end notes, you refer to yourself and, and your colleagues, including I would assume you'd think of Davis this way, as, as disaster historians. So I'm curious how, how you became one, and what drew you to this storm, and, and what makes disasters such rich subjects of study? So uh, one thing that I often struggle with, honestly, is whether to characterize myself as a disaster historian or a historian of South Carolina who happened to write a book about a disaster. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, And I'm still not quite sure what the the answer fully is. I suppose technically I'm both. Um, But in this case, uh, you know, I I grew up in South Carolina, um, so I'm from the state, uh, and the last really sort of big hurricane to strike force was Hurricane Hugo in 1989. And I, I slept through that as a baby. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the fact is, of course, is that hurricanes cast a long shadow um, on the lives of South Carolinians, you know, both past and present. Uh, and the arrival of hurricane season is something that's always anticipated and sort of warily watched every year. Right. Um, So it was partially growing up in South Carolina that helped bring me to this particular storm, uh, but also, of course, uh, mentorships as well. Uh, During my Ph.D. at the University of Colorado at Boulder, I had the great fortune of Peter H. Wood being in the department at the time. Um, and he, of course, as a you know renowned historian of colonial South Carolina, was delighted to have a South Carolinian to talk shop with. Um, and one day we were just sort of talking about hurricanes um, in South Carolina and their their effects, and we chatted some about the 1893 storm, which I had of course heard about, uh, but didn't have any extensive knowledge of, uh, and it just got me thinking um, about this particular storm. You know, it's the deadliest hurricane in South Carolina history, one of the deadliest hurricanes to ever strike what is now the United States. Um, 
what impact did that have? And of course, too, it strikes at a provocative time in the 1890s, which is, of course, one of the most fraught and violent decades in Southern history. Uh, What did the hurricane have to do with that? It began to raise all these questions for me uh, that I began to want to answer. Uh, And so I realized that there was was something there that I I could research and and learn about uh, to see how this hurricane did or perhaps did not uh, sort of intermingle with these other ongoing historical changes in the region. So that's really what drew me to this was the combination of growing up in South Carolina, um, you know, thinking about hurricanes and the effect that they have on the state, as well as, of course, you know, valuable relationships with with the mentor and the conversations that come out of that, that, of course, lead you to these topics. Um, so yes, that's, that's what drew me to this storm. But of course, too, as I began to dig, uh, and this is something that, you know, Andy Horowitz and Jacob Reams talk about a great deal too, which is that, um, archives coalesce around these kinds of disasters. Um, and that is absolutely the case for this particular storm. Um, it creates one of the best sort of documented, moments um, in South Carolina history um, because of the voluminous writings, papers, petitions, and so forth that everybody leaves behind after this storm too. So all of that made this a, a rich, uh, albeit of course, you know, tragic sort of area of study. Before we talk about the hurricane itself, let's mm-hmm. talk about this place. The, the South Country, the South Carolina Low Country has to have like one of the most fascinating histories of any place in the United States. Not that it's a competition. Every place is fascinating. But, um, you know, what is it? So, I mean, some of our listeners will know it intimately and, and some of them won't know it very well. And so what is important to know about its environment, its human history, in order to understand the trans- transformations wrought by the hurricane? Sure. So when I talk about the low country, um, I'm speaking essentially of sort of the coastal fringes of South Carolina um, into Georgia. The book itself mostly focuses on the South Carolina low country, though it does occasionally dip across the border into Georgia as well. Um, so the low country is this low-lying region characterized by um, barrier islands and these more interior islands by expansive salt marshes uh, and estuaries, massive deep water sounds um, and rivers and inlets, and of course, the tidal flow and pulse of the ocean. Um so it's this volatile but environment, but volatile by design, right? It's it's uh, deliberately uh, sort of mutable and, and changeable and responsive to changes in weather patterns, uh, changes in sort of tidal flows, um, and of course to hurricanes as well, which of course literally reshape these coastal landscapes. Um, and again, it's it's by that way for a reason. It helps protect the coastal plain from storm surges and inundations. Uh, it provides sort of a buffer zone. And of course, it provides incredibly rich habitats uh, for a wide variety of uh, animal and plant species. Uh, so in terms of the physical geography. That's what we're looking at when we talk about the low country. And yes, it also has this deep and and fascinating human history too. Now, of course, my book predominantly focuses on the late 19th century and into the 20th, um, but the low country's history, in order to understand that moment, of course, you have to go further back. Uh, This was, of course, originally um, indigenous homelands of sort of smaller tribes 
uh, that lived along the coast who were gradually displaced and forced out by the arrival um, of English settlers uh, in the late 17th century um, and throughout. Uh, And those English settlers brought with them an extremely hierarchical vision for how the Low Country should be structured. And this is, of course, built around slavery uh, and a profoundly sort of divided class structure, too, um, for whites. So um, as English settlers, you know, push out indigenous peoples, bring enslaved people from West Africa to the low country, uh, they begin to amass massive fortunes that make South Carolina, of course, the richest colony, at least for its white elite, uh, by the dawn of the Revolutionary War in the late 18th century. Uh, And it continues to develop and evolve from there. This slave economy relies upon a couple crops predominantly. Rice, of course, um, and rice is, uh, as as you have read, you know, a, a prominent part of this book. Uh, and rice agriculture is, of course, extremely complicated, requires a great deal of skill, and it also relies on being able to harness the natural environment. Um, so that's something that's very significant throughout this book, too. Uh, and it, it does because the way that it is developed is partially, largely using West African expertise in the title cultivation of rice, which means essentially building these incredibly engineered rice fields managed um, along sort of the river's edge um, of tidal rivers, just slightly inland, usually about 10, 15 miles, so that there's no saltwater incursion, but that the rivers that go by are still controlled by these tidal pulses. So they use gates and dams uh, to sort of guide this tidal flow of fresh water over the rice fields at strategic points in their growth cycle. This requires a huge amount of maintenance. It requires incredibly difficult, brutal work on the part of enslaved workers. Uh, And rice, of course, makes an enormous amount of money for the white elite of South Carolina, too. So rice is a big one. Sea Island cotton is, of course, another significant moneymaker. And this grows best on these barrier islands of South Carolina and Georgia, where they sort of thrive with these humid breezes that blow off the ocean. And then to a lesser extent in the 18th century, too, indigo is, of course, a a valued crop in this region. So as you approach the antebellum era um, and get into the late days of slavery, um, CL and cotton and rice are these sort of dominant agricultural forces um, in the region, again, brought into fruition by the enslaved laborers um, and their own talent and skill as, as engineers and cultivators of these crops. So all of this, you know, on on the one hand, of course, um, as I I mentioned in the introduction, this kind of history, right, of imperialism and slavery is not exactly uh, a unique one, right? And and in fact, this is the the overweening narrative of U.S. history, um, if we're being clear-eyed about it. But of course, in the low country, this environment gives it these sorts of different twists and iterations um, in which, of course... uh, there's this constant struggle to force the low country environment to make it productive and fecund for slavery um, and for agricultural production. Um, And when it succeeds, of course, it succeeds massively well, but uh, it's also, of course, open to the ocean, open to these hurricanes, uh, and can also thus suffer these sort of devastating setbacks um, due to these environmental factors. And that, of course, even, you know, once the Civil War destroys um, slavery as an institution, 
doesn't quite destroy the plantation economy fully. Um, it leaves us, of course, in this sort of nebulous space where African-Americans uh, along the South Carolina coast are able to sort of claim land ownership high, at higher rates than elsewhere in the South, where the white elite try to force them back into the fields as much as they can. But African-Americans are actually remarkably good at sort of pushing against that and reducing the workload to make it one that's more amenable to them. Um, so here you are in 1893 with very similar sort of types of cultivation and agriculture, but shifted some um, for, you know, the era of liberation that comes with emancipation. So yes, it's this place with this rich and, and fascinating history. Um, and of course, I have to preview some of all of that to sort of understand how we get where we where, where we are in the 1890s, which of course has all of these remnants um, of how people have been growing and living in this region for the past, you know, practically, you know, 200 plus years with these new twists on it because of what has happened since the 1860s. And then we arrive at the morning of Sunday, August 27th, 1893. And and you write that Sea Island residents are tending their gardens and they're having breakfast with their families and they're going to church. And by the next morning, thousands were dead. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. about this storm? Yes. So um, hurricanes in South Carolina, um, folks generally expected them a big one every sort of 15 to 20 years. Um, you know, and, and so folks had their eye, um, on this, on the, on the horizon, you know, sort of worried and expecting that there might be some sort of large storm soon, but of course you could never be quite certain. Um, and one of the major issues that of course one faced in the early 1890s was that detection uh, had not necessarily been met with any massive advances. Um, The best that you sort of saw in terms of changes in how people detected the weather was through the establishment of the U.S. Weather Bureau in the 1870s. And so what you did have at least was a network of weather watchers who could telegraph and get messages to others, uh, warning of something like a hurricane or news of a hurricane or something like that. Um, And the main weather station in South Carolina is, of course, uh, in downtown Charleston where the U.S. Weather Bureau agent Louis Jesenovsky was was keeping watch. And he had been concerned. Uh, He had noticed, you know, the sort of haze over the ocean the last couple of weeks. But that actually was not because of this hurricane. There happened to be like three other hurricanes in the Atlantic at the exact same time as this particular storm. Uh, And so he was witnessing the effects of that just, you know, far, far offshore. Uh, But he began to get telegraph messages warning um, of a massive storm that seemed to be brewing in the Caribbean. Um, And he begins to get concerned himself. His his bosses were not. They thought it would turn away from the coast. But Jesenovsky had been charting uh, sort of weather pressure, uh, air pressure, barometric pressure patterns um, and feared that the way a pressure line was sort of seeded over the Appalachian Mountains would cause the storm to turn towards South Carolina coast. Um, and so Jesenowski, as he gets these warnings, does put out a flag warning downtown Charlestonians of the potential arrival of a hurricane. And I believe he does this on the 26th. But of course, that's only for people living in downtown Charleston and maybe not even all of them. You still have this mass, significant and very dispersed population living in rural isolated islands up and down the coast who had no warning whatsoever. Right. Um, 
Now, of course, there were sort of ways of knowing. So, for example, the mosquito fleet of African-American fishermen in Charleston uh, had been nervous because they noticed that their fish had disappeared. Uh, and this uh, is a signal to them because fish often sort of go into the depths of the ocean if they can sense that there is some sort of large storm on the way. Um, and so anytime they would go out and find that their fish were gone, this signaled perhaps that there was some sort of storm brewing that they needed to be wary of. Um, but largely, of course, uh, people had very little warning. Um, and yeah, sure enough, on, on Sunday morning, yes, uh, you know, you can read in the diaries and observations of people living along the coast that um, it was clear there was nasty weather starting to blow in. And people began to grow quite concerned when they realized that the winds were not coming in from a constant single direction, that they were beginning to rotate and shift throughout the course of the day. So um, the weather gets worse and worse along the coast of Georgia and South Carolina as that Sunday wears on. Um, and you have people starting to batten down the hatches. Uh, but yes, largely folks come home from church uh, and begin to realize that they need to start preparing if possible. Uh, and over the course of that afternoon, the weather gets worse and worse. Uh, and the real calamity of the storm, though, is that are two factors. One, that it hits at night. Um, the worst of the storm uh, is basically from 9 p.m. Uh, until about 3 to 4 a.m., though, of course, there are effects seen on the other side of this, too. Um, this is incredibly dangerous, especially for African-Americans living in these rural farms along the coast, too, because this means that as waters rise, it's very difficult to escape. You literally can't see, but you're struggling through high winds and storm waters to try to make it to whatever higher ground or safer dwelling you can you could potentially reach. So that's calamity number one, is of course that this hits at night. The second was that this particular hurricane brought with it a massive storm surge. This storm surge entirely inundated multiple sea islands, um, including Kiowa, which is, of course, today a massive privatized resort island on the coast, along with a number of others um, in as many as, you know, 10 plus feet of water. Um, it floods, of course, Beaufort and Charleston and Georgetown, uh, the three main sort of towns along the South Carolina coast. Uh, it also, of course, brings waters to Savannah, Georgia, too. Um, and so that's that's the other calamity. And that's why so many people die in this storm is because of this storm surge. Um, now, the winds crescendo and reach their height of about 120 miles per hour around midnight to 1 a.m. Jesenowski records all of this from Charleston. Um, he, you know, has to venture to the top of his building to check his instruments whenever he can. Um, and he is partially the reason why we know exactly sort of what the mile per hour winds were, at least in Charleston. Um, so this, this is what makes this storm so deadly, um, is this nighttime arrival uh, and this storm surge, um, which made it very difficult to escape um, and left people in these incredibly vulnerable positions, um, trying to sort of find their way through the nighttime um, amidst, you know, these literally the sea being brought inland. When the storm passes, you assess the devastation and you find that it's not uniform, but as you write, it depended on the hierarchy and the strictures of New South capitalism and Jim Crow racism. Could you illustrate a bit what that looks like for us? 
Sure. Uh, so I think a good place to start with that is by talking about one of the changes that you did see in the low country economy after the Civil War, and that is the introduction of phosphate mining. Um, and I, I'll explain in a second sort of how this connects. But in short, phosphate uh, is a fertilizer um, composed, well, it can be used as a fertilizer, composed of essentially the uh, fossilized um, bodies <laughs> of ancient creatures. Uh, and phosphate, uh, which collects in these rocks, these nodules, underlies both the salt marshes of the low country um, and the river bottoms of the low country. Uh, and it was, you know, known to white South Carolinians before the Civil War. Um, and in fact, some of the earliest people to, to dig it up were enslaved laborers themselves. But it isn't until after the Civil War um, that there begins to be significant investment in phosphate mining in South Carolina. Um, and so uh, these phosphate mines, which, you know, again, are essentially consist of scraping mud uh, off the top of salt marshes and dredging the bottom of low country rivers. So it is this very destructive process for this environment. But these phosphate works also provide a useful source of wage labor for African Americans. Um, so African Americans in the low country were very interested in trying to find ways to evade totalizing white control over their labor. Um, and they partially did this through owning small plots of land, through trying to cultivate uh, plots of cotton that they could sell uh, at market. Um, and they also did this through cultivating these sort of flexible ways of earning a wage to cobble together a living. And these phosphate works uh, worked very well for them in that regard. Um, they could arrive at these phosphate works and work temporarily, perhaps for a few days or a week or a couple months, and then return to their, you know, their homes, their farms, um, to work on their own crops. So again, this sort of meshes well with the seasonal nature of agricultural labor uh, for low country African Americans. But these phosphate works were also, of course, located in very vulnerable places, right? Along salt marshes, along rivers' edges. Um, and very often the way that living around these phosphate works functioned was African Americans lived in um, fairly ramshackle camps set up around these phosphate mines up and down the low country. Uh, and so when the hurricane strikes, um, there are a couple places that turn into sort of sites of mass death. And these phosphate works were absolutely one of them. You would have, you know, dozens of people drown at a single phosphate mine um, in the low country. You also saw this happen very frequently too um, on rice plantations. Um, and the African-Americans who worked on rice plantations predominantly did not own land um, because in order to engage in commercial production of rice, you have to have a very large amount of land to make this work. Um, and so very often we're talking about tenant farmers and sharecroppers who live on these rice plantations, which are also, again, alongside the edges of these rivers. And then, too, you also have large numbers of deaths on Sea Island cotton plantations, which, again, are on barrier islands, which, as we've discussed, many of those were completely inundated by the storm surge. 
So um, you have this sort of uh, blending, of course, of these old forms of labor, which deliberately sort of engineer environmental vulnerability, along with these new forms of labor, which do the same. They all, of course, serve the forces of capital and white bosses, Um, whether we're talking about planters, so-called planters. uh, In my book, I deliberately don't refer to them as planters because they don't really plant very much. Um, Yes, Uh, white landowners um, and, of course, yes, the white bosses of these phosphate works. Um, And and so these are where you, you know, hear about mass graves being dug, um, where dozens of people are buried in mass graves at phosphate works on seal and cotton plantations and on rice plantations, um, because there are these these places that on the one hand, these white landowners and white bosses are able to say, well, where else are we supposed to? do this, you know, like this is where this work belongs. There is no other place that you can grow seal and cotton or rice or dig up phosphate than in these places that happen coincidentally um, to be in these remarkably vulnerable places. But of course, that's not quite good enough. And it's not quite satisfying enough of of an answer that erases their culpability here. Um, They're still insistent Um, on engaging in these exploitative forms of labor, because this is all very, again, difficult, dirty work um, that puts people at risk for all kinds of water-based, waterborne diseases, mosquito-borne diseases, um, and where they were often, too, kept in very poor conditions and paid really quite little, um, especially if we're talking about rice and seal and cotton um, agriculture, too. Phosphate, paid a decent wage for what it was at the time, but even so, right, it's it's not worth uh, a life. Um, so that's that's one of the main ways that you, you see um, sort of the demands of labor um, and capital and the particular economic structure of the low country in this, you know, post-bellum era shaping how people are impacted by this hurricane, um, how it literally incurs these different rates of death depending on what industry you worked in um, and what kind of economic activity you felt you had to be saddled with in order to make a living and support your family. Um, yeah. So thousands die, but and even for the survivors, there's there's widespread suffering for the reasons you mentioned, this disruptions to the lifeways and, and the economy of the region. Um, and the book's middle section takes this head on and looks, looks at recovery efforts um, in the days, in the weeks, in the months following the storm. And I, I think it's really interesting the way you stress that there's, there's a, there are trend, it's a transitional moment for two reasons when it comes to recovery. One is that there's this national thinking about a national discussion about the proper role of the government in this kind of work, right? State and federal government in, in, in helping from disaster recovery. And then there's also in the state of South Carolina, they're in the middle of this political transformation that we can look back now and say is from, from a reconstruction, um, you know, regime to a, to a Jim Crow regime. Um, and, and this storm happens right in the middle of both of those transitions. Can you, can you say a bit about this? Sure. Um, so yes, uh, one of the main issues that uh, people grapple with um, after this hurricane is the fact that yes, there's no standardized federal assistance in the wake of a disaster of this kind, right? There's no FEMA. Um, there's there's nothing of that sort to provide uh, assistance in a mandated, structured kind of way. What you had instead was essentially politicians from an impacted state making piecemeal requests for different kinds of funding or rations or help of different sorts, whether from federal Congress um, or from sort of specific 
cabinet offices that might be helpful too. It just really depended. Um, so yes, this is is one of the, the conversations. And of course, um, by the early 1890s, now South Carolina does still have an African-American congressman being sent to the U.S. Congress at this point. Um, uh, you know, George Washington Murray. Um, uh, but predominantly the federal delegation to DC from South Carolina is, is whites at this point um, who are largely hostile to African-Americans, but who also don't necessarily have the pull beyond the South that they might need to sort of garner the goodwill of other legislatures to bring in the funding that they, you know, were starting to ask for. So that's, that's one serious area of tension is negotiating um, this, this federal scene, which often sort of forced some of these white South Carolinian politicians to try to mute or slightly dampen uh, the racism that they expressed quite freely and openly back in South Carolina uh, in order to try to curry some favor in D.C. Um, and of course, Murray is put in the middle of this, too, and has to constantly struggle to be to be heard, um, because one of the things that South Carolinians were always trying to do was to to essentially elevate um, white politicians who had challenged Murray for this office uh, and had essentially tried to commit widespread voter fraud in order to unseat him or steal his seat. Um, too. So it's 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 an interesting story if you look at this this federal level sort of tussling, which ultimately, unfortunately, does not come to a to very much. Right. Um, you know, I think that they're able to get a little bit of assistance from a couple cabinet departments, um, and that's really largely the extent of it. Now, at the state level, too, yes, uh, absolutely. South Carolina is in this moment where they are transitioning um, from this sort of Reconstruction era politics to these Jim Crow politics. And this is, of course, where one of the most infamous South Carolina politicians of the era really comes into the book, too, um, uh, Benjamin Ryan Tillman. Um, and Tillman was himself from a very wealthy white family. Um, he was by no means the sort of populist he made himself out to be, um, but he certainly did greatly dislike some of the other white elite in the state, predominantly those from the low country. Um, and so Tillman, um, who was governor at the time, about to transition to his role as U.S. senator, which he would hold until his death in the 1910s, um, Tillman was rabidly racist. Now, of course, many white South Carolina politicians were, uh, but Tillman leaned into uh, especially sort of virulent and violent rhetoric in order to whip up the white voting base um, and, and attain popularity and gain public office. Uh, so Tillman, of course, is not very kindly disposed towards anybody impacted by this hurricane. He is not uh, a fan of the white elite of Charleston or the Low Country, so he has no real interest in helping them. Um, and of course, too, neither is he interested in forking over money towards African Americans in the Low Country, because. One of the things that Tillman is obsessed with is the fact that South Carolina is a black majority state. Um, and much of that black majority, of course, comes from the sort of overwhelming black majority that you saw in low country counties. Um, Beaufort County, South Carolina, for example, uh, in 1890 is 92% African-American. Um, I mean, you know, uh, and these are numbers that Tillman did not look kindly at. 
So, um, yes, uh, as questions about, you know, well, what assistance should be provided here? What obligation does the state government have towards the impacted populations of this region? Um, that, of course, gets absolutely tied up in these complex battles over state power, um, over sort of the rise of Jim Crow, um, and to... Uh, over this question of how much sort of local autonomy should the African-American politicians uh, and the white elite of the low country have. Um, and of course, you see this play out in sort of the tussles that emerge between uh, the Sea Island Relief Committee, which was an integrated relief committee centered in Beaufort, and then the Charleston Relief Committee, of course, in Charleston, which is largely staffed by, you know, uh, former enslavers and their descendants by white mer mercantile and banking elite um, and white politicians uh, who, you know, were largely sort of embraced by the Democratic Party at this time, too. Um, and then, of course, Tillman in Columbia, um, who wants to exert control over all of them, um, but needs to figure out how to do that. <laughs> um, and so in, in Beaufort, with the Sea Island Relief Committee, um, you know, they work on all of these committees work on soliciting donations from people all across the country. Um, they even uh, Seattle and Relief Committee is even able to get Frederick Douglass to put out an appeal um, for the uh, Sea Island sufferers, as they were referred to constantly in the press. Um, so they, these committees serve the purpose of raising money and distributing and collecting whatever rations and supplies are brought into the low country um, that are donated as well. All the while, Tillman's sort of fuming over this. Um, he largely stonewalls any state support uh, and also does everything he can to try to elevate the Charleston Committee over the Sea Island Relief Committee because, of course, he does not really trust the Sea Island Relief Committee um, because it's integrated. Um, for example, it has the famed Civil War veteran Robert Smalls is a prominent member of this. Um, so, so yes, um, all of these questions of relief get tied up in these political debates of the day, um, and they often center on this question of, well, are African Americans deserving of this, or are they simply getting another version of the Freedmen's Bureau? Um, and all of these specters of reconstruction end up being raised by white supremacists in South Carolina at this time, too. Um, so they sort of recycle this alarmist rhetoric that they, you know, have had peddled all throughout the Reconstruction era and gets revived here too. Um, even as, of course, they're trying to bring about a more oppressive state that prevents African Americans um, in the Low Country, in particular, from continuing to ex exercise what little sort of political um, power they still had. So, yes, it's a fascinating political dynamic. And alongside that, that local organization, the major player in this recovery becomes suddenly the Red Cross with Clara Barton at the helm here. And and you show that this actually this is actually a major moment in the history of the Red Cross. This effort is one of the biggest things they've ever done up to that point. Um, I'm curious, how did the Red Cross's sense of the needs of the survivors uh, and, their, and kind of their vision of, for the region's future jibe with that of Black low country residents themselves? Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, the American Red Cross had been founded just a decade earlier, yes, by Clara Barton, of course, best uh, known for her work with Red Cross, her work as a civil war nurse and so forth. Um, and while Barton had, of course, assisted with some difficult fields of recovery, such as the Johnstown flood um, a couple years earlier, among others, 
Um, this was by far the largest field of recovery, as she called it, that they had yet grappled. And this actually made her hesitant. She wasn't quite sure the Red Cross was ready um, to handle this. Uh, so what they're looking at um, is essentially, you know, thousands dead, 30,000 in sort of immediate desperate need. Um, but of course, as time goes on, about 70,000 more uh, come out of the woodwork needing rations and assistance and so forth. Um, and so Barton looks at this and she feels quite overwhelmed by it. She's deeply uncertain that this is something they can handle, but she feels obligated to do so nonetheless. She is invited to the Low Country and tours it um, and decides to take this on. Um, and so Barton and the Red Cross officially sort of arrive about six weeks after the hurricane strikes. Um, so in early October, um, is when the Red Cross sets up shop. And their main headquarters are in Beaufort, um, where they set up uh, in, in a warehouse um, there in downtown Beaufort. Uh, and they, they set about trying to coordinate a massive relief effort. They do a couple things. Um, they, of course, uh, come up with a ration distribution system. Um, and they also institute, and this is something they had never done before um, in other fields of recovery, which were predominantly white, they institute a work requirement um, for gaining rations. And this looks um, a, a couple different ways. So, for example, many African-American women organized, uh, you know, with sort of, you know, supplies from the Red Cross, organized sewing circles um, up and down the coast to modify different clothes, blankets, and so forth that had been shipped and distributed by the Red Cross to them. Um, and for this work, they received, uh, you know, double rations and and other sort of forms of that kind of material assistance. No money, though. Um, and for uh, men, predominantly, of course, black men, um, they end up forming work crews. Now, these work crews were sort of locally organized, um, you know, community-driven projects um, where they assessed and figured out where their work was needed. Um, and they often, of course, too, were led by African-American bosses. Um, these were not sort of white-led um, in the majority of cases. And what they did is they did things like rebuild houses, uh, fix roofs, rebuild fences around gardens. Um, and they also did the incredibly valuable work of refurbishing farm fields. Um, so one thing that had long gone sort of neglected because again of this flexible living that they cultivated was often um, clearing out ditches, uh, which sounds quite elementary in some ways, but they're so important because the low country is so low lying, drainage was a serious issue. So to make farm fields as productive as possible, you need to have well cleared ditches. Um, and these work crews up and down the low country uh, clear out literally hundreds and hundreds of miles worth of ditches, um, which helped made African-American owned fields, um, you know, more fecund than they had been previously. So it is this valuable work. Um, and again, they're, you know, paid double rations. The Red Cross provides tools, um, wood, lumber, supplies, and so forth. Um, but it is still under this work requirement that the Red Cross had not previously mandated in any other case. So yes, it is It is this complicated story. Um, and part of this too is that the Red Cross is informed by deeply paternalistic views of African-Americans in the region too. They constantly use this language of needing to sort of impart the importance of lessons of self-sufficiency um, and upright citizenship uh, to the African-Americans of the Low Country uh, with this idea that 
the hardships that they faced were not the product of structural inequities um, and political oppression under growing white supremacy in South Carolina, uh, but instead could be staved off by their own industrious habits. Right. Um, and this is, of course, one of the things that the Red Cross and Clara Barton, too, profoundly misunderstand about the Low Country. They have this assumption that this kind of personal improvement um, is what will uh, sort of make African Americans, you know, uh, industrious and healthy and, and well to do. Um, not that there are these larger political structures being crafted to dispossess them. Um, and, and so the Red Cross is, is constantly very frustrating. And Clara Barton is a very frustrating figure herself because on the one hand, um, you know, she's, uh, in obviously, you know, coordinates this, this massive relief effort. It's an immense amount of work. She's in her seventies. She's working like 14 to 16 hour days for months at a time. Um, and she deeply resists and pushes back constantly against white South Carolinians who seek to undermine the Red Cross's effort. So she is fighting against um, some of these white South Carolinians trying to craft this white supremacist narrative of relief and, and welfare, um, you know, which, of course, they used all the time as this sort of scary thing that African-Americans were supposedly getting. Um, but she's just she and the Red Cross are never able to really quite get it. Right. Um, they they never are able to fully grasp just the enormity of the obstacles that African-Americans in the low country are facing. Um, so on the one hand, you know, African-Americans are happy to ally with the Red Cross and to use the resources that they bring to bear to, you know, rebuild their homes and their communities and their farm fields, especially because this landed independence and autonomy is one of their greatest uh, sort of tools and bulwarks against the rise of white supremacy. So they're happy to ally with them in the meantime. They see them as useful and strategic allies. But of course, the Red Cross are deeply imperfect allies at the same time. Um, so yes, it's this very fraught recovery effort. White South Carolinians despise the Red Cross for the most part. Um, you know, you do have some sympathizers with them too, um, who help and assist, especially in Beaufort. Um, but you also see a lot of efforts to try to you know, harangue the Red Cross into departing too. Um, so yes, you have this three-sided conflict, uh, which can be quite rare in the South at the time that the Red Cross brings into fruition during the nine months that they're there in the Low Country. You spoke about how Ben Tillman and, and other white supremacists that are working to build Jim Crow across the state are are frustrated and long frustrated by uh, the difficulty of doing that in the Low Country because of, uh, I think as you put it, kind of the autonomy that they, that the black residents had had affected for themselves there, and and just a lot of that, like just the just how many there were, and the, and the demographic dominance in your phrase of 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 that um, that population. Um, in this sense, for the white supremacists, the, the hurricane helped, and the hurricane you kind of talked about it as kind of offering a, a snapshot of of what could be and, and how to get there. And so, can yeah. you can you lay that out for us a little bit? Sure. Um, so yes, uh, that's exactly right. White South Carolinians hostile to African Americans did indeed look out at the destruction that the hurricane caused. Um, African Americans reduced to these conditions of want and depredation and need um, uh, and diminished numbers uh, and, and viewed this as sort of the future that they envisioned, right? They don't want African-Americans who own their own land and sort of are able to exercise some economic autonomy. Um, instead, they want them reliant upon um, white control. 
so yes, it, it gives them this vision of, of what could be in the state. And so this is a, a sort of a complex story as to, to how they use and wield the hurricane. And there's one really illustrative op-ed that's uh, published about uh, two weeks after the hurricane by James, uh, James Henry Hammond's son, Harry. Um, and James Henry Hammond was, you know, an infamous senator, racist, rapist senator from South Carolina. Um, and his son, who's not as well known, um, nonetheless comes to be perhaps the most prominent sort of agricultural policymaker in South Carolina in the era of the hurricane. And Harry Hammond writes this opinion piece um, shortly after the hurricane in which he argues that the number of hurricane dead demonstrate that African-Americans in the low country had squandered, you know, all of the opportunities and richness um, of this landscape um, and that the number of how many were dead or wounded or, or hurt by this indicated that they were not fit to live in the low country anymore. And so he proposes that African-Americans in the low country be literally shipped upstate uh, to work on white-owned farms and fields elsewhere so that this population is dispersed, so that people, white people, have, you know, better suited um, to cultivating this landscape and profiting off of it can move into the low country and take over these rich lands that he argued African-Americans did not deserve. Um, and so, of course, this plan doesn't come in, come to pass, right? But it does give you a sense of how white policymakers and politicians viewed African-Americans in the low country and how they would have you know, seize this opportunity, uh, could, you know, could they have done so to entirely remake the low country environment and landscape into this white dominated utopia um, in which they sort of reclaim um, the productivity um, and profitability of the low country. So this is the vision. Um, uh, but yes, what, what happens? What do white South Carolinians actually do? Um, and there's, there's a few answers to this. Uh, one is that the hurricane highlighted for them the danger um, of African-Americans being able to continue to control conversation about their autonomy and their political power at the local level. So one thing that white South Carolinians do is they relocate the conversation about political power from these local levels to the state level. Um, and what this means is that a year and a half after the hurricane strikes, Ben Tillman is able to convene a new constitutional convention. And this is something that Barton looks at. Um, and as she's leaving, um, she makes this, uh, she, she writes a, a letter, um, gives interviews uh, in which she basically begs white South Carolinians to not bring down the hammer of crafting a new state politic that will disenfranchise African-Americans um, and wound them further. Um, so this is, is one thing that she sees coming. She knows that this is in the wind um, and she's fearful that white South Carolinians are going to sort of take advantage um, of the diminished low country uh, to sort of finally end this era of relative black autonomy and political power in the region. Um, so yes, Tillman is able to move the conversation to the state level, uh, sort of removes this from the places where African-Americans still had these entrenched communities uh, and is able to forced through the passage of the 1895 Jim Crow Constitution, um, which effectively disenfranchises African-Americans across the state, including, of course, the final pinpoints and pockets uh, left in the low country, too. So that's that's another way. Um, and sort of a final one that you see, too, um, is, again, it comes from a northern interlocutor, um, a Quaker minister from up north uh, named Elkington, 
tours the Low Country in January of 1894. Um, and what he notes upon con- conversations with Tillman, um, the mayor of Charleston, and other white politicians is that, well, if a couple thousand African Americans in the Low Country died, so be it. They were just in their way anyhow. Um, so you also see them literally viewing the demographic attrition due to the hurricane as something that's beneficial to their political project. Um, So these are sort of a snapshot of the different ways that white South Carolinians react um, and are sort of eager to use the destruction of the hurricane to their own advantage in crafting a Jim Crow state. One of the distinctive things about your book is its chronological scope. Uh, This Mm -hmm. is about a hurricane that lasted fewer than 24 hours, and yet your book stretches decades. Um, And as you go into the 20th century, you find overlapping environmental crises, including several more destructive hurricanes um, that are undermining the economic autonomy of, of black South Carolinians and and and, and, are, and, are, and also of, of white elites to some extent as well, their success, certainly. Can you tell us about that a bit? Sure. Um, so this, of course, draws upon ideas, again, from you know Scott Gabriel Knowles, uh, Andy Horowitz, and so forth, who talk about slow disasters and long disasters, right? Where uh, it's never about simply the meteorological uh, phenomenon of a singular hurricane, right? Uh, It's always about this cascade, um, how they intertwine with ongoing forces of historical change. Um, And this hurricane is, of course, no different. Um, And to understand its long effects, you you really do have to go all the way up into the 1920s. And that conclusion, of course, kind of spans even more time than that too, right? Um, uh, And so, yes, the, the last third of the book takes this longer view and says, okay, well, what what happens next? Um, And yeah, there's a a lot of calamities that strike South Carolina in the ensuing decades. Yeah, several more hurricanes. There's sort of this unusually active 20-year period um, where several more strike the coast and incur more damage. You also as well have the arrival of the bull weevil in the late 1910s, which also does serious damage. Um, So there's environmental crises that uh, continue to sort of wear away um, at African-Americans. And one of the ways that this is visible and one of the most valuable sort of set of sources from this are a series of interviews that the sociologist Clyde Vernon Kaiser does with African-Americans in the 1920s who migrated from South Carolina um, up to Harlem um, and New York City. Um, And a lot of them talk about the hurricane. 30 years later. Um, And many of them say uh, that, you know, the hurricane was in some ways the turning point, even if it took them years to realize it. Uh, Nothing got better after that. um, is is sort of this repeated refrain that you see, um, such that, you know, things that would have been difficult ordinarily, but over something they could overcome. they began to have that sort of worn away at by the hurricane's destruction um, over time. Um, And for some, for example, what this means is that, uh, so um, one sort of illustrative example uh, is um, a young woman whose parents both developed chronic illnesses um, after the hurricane. Um, And she cares for them for years, but eventually needs to make more money to help send back. So she moves to New York um, to work as a maid so she can send money home. And she didn't realize she was going away for good, but suddenly there she was. She just never came back. Um, In another case, a woman's husband uh, dealt with a skull injury um, that left him essentially sort of unable to work. So she had to both serve as caretaker and the main wage earner for the family too. 
um, he eventually dies several years later um, due to this injury incurred during the hurricane. Um, and so she finally moves up north to work again as a maid um, and, you know, has to, you know, use this to because she just can't support a farm on her own any longer. Right. So it's these sort of stories of long attrition. Right. African-Americans had deep attachment to the low country, um, especially if they owned land because they understood sort of the struggle that it had taken to to achieve these gains. Um, and so many held on to it for years and years. Right. They wanted to stay near their family. They wanted to stay near this land. Um, they wanted to not have to give up on this place that meant a great deal to them. Um, but you can see in those two examples, you know, how the hurricane sort of wore away at their ability to, to cope um, and just eventually made it too often economically or financially difficult. Um, because of course, too, nothing else is getting better. White landowners aren't growing kinder. Um, you know, uh, the conditions of work in South Carolina rice fields, for example, was only getting more difficult because the hurricane had, of course, wrecked a large number of rice fields. Uh, and reviving and refurbishing those takes an immense amount of very difficult work, too. Um, then, of course, too, if you have even more hurricanes that continue to soak the soil, ruin crops, then you have the boll weevil as well, um, which, you know, wrecked cotton, which again was this valuable cash crop that African-Americans could grow on their smaller plots of land that provided them with valuable cash. Um, so all of this just begins to coalesce um, and, and people begin to feel they have to move away. Um, you know, you, you see young men saying that they have to go because they just can't sort of bear to see the starvation. So they have to go leave work so they can send money home to. Um, and because of this, it prompts the great migration from the sea islands. Um, and again, story after story refers to the hurricane um, as this clearly something that's stuck in people's minds as a turning point for them. Um, even though, of course, they talk too about how this hurricane interacts uh, with, you know, racism institutionalized in state law, um, with sort of economic hardships, with these environmental changes as well. Um, they all, you know, see this as this cohesive whole of what's impacting their lives and forcing them out. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I take the story up through the 1920s is by saying, okay, well, why do African Americans leave the Low Country? And it turns out that the hurricane is a significant part of that story. You grew up in South Carolina again. Um, I'm curious how the storm is remembered today. Is it something you ever heard about growing up? And and then what would it what would it do for us if we remembered it better? Hmm. If we all read your book, <laughs> which I, I hope everybody does, of course. Um, so. Interestingly, there are a couple ways that the hurricane is quite literally memorialized on the landscape. And there are two that are quite prominent. Um, one is on the Beaufort waterfront itself, um, which of course looks very different now from how it did in the 1890s. In the 1890s, it of course was was lined with docks and warehouses and, and ships and boats and so forth um, as this sort of commercial hub of the region. Um, and today, of course, all of those are gone. Um, and instead you have a, a beautiful sort of pedestrian walkway and park. Um, that you can visit and stroll along. And I highly recommend you do so if you ever go visit Beaufort. Um, and along that too, they also have these sort of stone uh, pedestals that describe the hurricane and its impacts. And they describe it as this kind of cascade, right? Um, with it, this massive long lasting impact on the region's you know, social, economic, and political structures. So that's one way that it's quite literally memorialized. And 
Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's quite an excellent monument, um, honestly. Um, the other way that you can sort of physically see it on the landscape is if you visit the Penn Center on St. Helena Island. And the Penn Center is, of course, the contemporary um, preservation of the Penn School, which was founded during the Civil War as part of the Port Royal experiment known as a rehearsal for reconstruction, um, a la Willie Lee Rose's wonderful book about this. Um, and the Penn School evolved, right? It was a school for a very long time, up into the 1940s, and it became a community center, um, a center for organizing. Martin Luther King, of course, visited multiple times and, and really valued his time there. Um, and today it's uh, a museum, um, and some of the buildings too are part of the Reconstruction Era National Historical Park. Um, which was just founded a few years ago. Um, and so on the grounds of Penn Center uh, is one of the sort of highway markers that also describes the hurricane um, and mentions the Red Cross's efforts there too. Um, and Penn School, uh, its grounds, you know, served as, you know, sort of a small kind of refugee camp and, and gathering place after the hurricane itself. Um, so those are the two most prominent ways that you can quite literally see the hurricane um, sort of on the landscape if you visit Beaufort County, uh, which is definitely the place that sort of holds the memory of it um, uh, closest, I would say, because Beaufort was in many ways truly sort of the epicenter of where much of this destruction occurs. Um, so it is it is heartening, actually, that the ways that you see this are, you know, very well interpreted, uh, very well done, well written, um, and so forth. But as for the hurricane more broadly, to think about how this could be useful to us, I mean, there, there are a few ways. Um, one of the things that, of course, drew me to the hurricane was also thinking about it at this critical point um, in which South Carolina and the Low Country is transitioning from this sort of agricultural hub um, to a center for tourism. Now, what does that transition look like? And of course, the hurricane is right in the middle of this. And I think what I've explained throughout the course of this interview sort of show how it serves as this detrimental force um, to the agricultural nature um, of the low country. But throughout the 20th century, too, you know, you, you see a number of other transformations um, that sort of fill in this particular vacuum. Right. Um, and one of them, you know, begins and I describe it in the book, too, also in the 1920s, which was part of the Charleston Renaissance, in which the white elite of Charleston began to craft these very gauzy narratives um, of what rice agriculture in particular in the low country looked like, even as rice is, of course, quite thoroughly on the way out. It's in fact the destruction of rice that allows them to craft these false narratives about how the low country under rice was this you know, lush golden landscape where African-Americans sort of labored with ease, um, you know, with no difficulties where the white elite were able to live these gracious, privileged lifestyles, which, you know, I mean, you know true enough in that case. Um, um, and this helps guide tourist traffic to South Carolina and to Charleston in particular. Um, and of course, as you see agricultural land diminishing in its use, um, as you see this land becoming sort of abandoned or overgrown, it instead ends up being bought up in very large swaths over the course of the 20th century. Um, until slowly, of course, you have corporate developers uh, sort of cashing in on the cachet of the low country and this false narrative that has been created to help turn it into the tourist destination that many people know it as today, right? Um, 
And this, when I say tourist destination, I'm referring, of course, yes, to privatized islands like Kiowa um, and and others around the Low Country. To, of course, the sort of avid golf culture there. Um, uh, to the fact that its history has, an, until fairly recently, largely been whitewashed by those in positions of power, um, who, in many cases, you know, can can trace their lineages back um, to white enslaver families in, of the antebellum era, too. Um, so this is the other reason why this hurricane matters so much to the Low Country today is because it plays a really integral and important role in that transformation of the Low Country from this sort of Reconstruction era history, which represented such possibility, um, to this sort of white-dominated, quite whitewashed uh, tourist destination that it is today. Now, of course, there there are some changes that you're seeing. You know, there are activists, African American activists across the region doing you know remarkable work connected to environmental justice. Uh, you, of course, have seen wonderful work being done to revive um, Gullah Geechee Lifeways uh, language and culture in the region too. Um, and of course, you have the admirable um, work of the Reconstruction Era National Historical Park, um, also trying to sort of ensure this. Um, there are, you know, uh, McLeod Plantation is one of the few labor camps on the coast that also does a great job, you know, sort of presenting clear-eyed history of the region as well. So it's not all doom and gloom from that regard at all. Um, but knowing the hurricane and understanding you know, sort of the long effects that these storms can have um, helps shed a lot of light onto how we got where we are today in South Carolina. Um, so that's, I think, what I something I hope comes through in the book um, and that folks are able to glean from it, especially too, because of course, I haven't even touched upon one of the most important things sort of looming over the low country today, which is of course the climate crisis, right? Um, you know, Charleston deals with king tides in a way it never has before. Um, hurricanes pose ever-increasing threats to the region, too. Um, and, of course, in this way, uh, again, as I say in the conclusion, the hurricane is quite literally sort of a scrying mirror held up to the low country in which you can sort of look back at this inundated coast in 1893 um, and ask well, what will that look like as seas continue to rise in the region today, too? Um, so, yes, these are all reasons why I think the hurricane is is important to us still. And for all these reasons, I hope you're kept very busy in the months ahead um, sharing this with readers and and, and with audiences. Um, uh, when things calm down a little bit, um, I wonder if you have any current projects that you're anxious to get to that you're, that you're at a stage where you're willing to preview them for our listeners? <laughs> um, so let's see. Um, one is a project that I, uh, you know, is connected to this. Um, so the, one of the greatest sort of archival archives that coalesced around this were the Red Cross's papers. Um, and the Red Cross preserved many of the um, work crew reports um, and also names of African-Americans who received assistance. Um, African-Americans also routinely petitioned the Red Cross um, asking for different forms of rations or assistance um, or in asking for their support and aid in staving off exploitative white landowners too. Um, and so what I've begun to do is create some databases of those names um, sort of tagged to what kind of either work they did if they were on a work crew or, you know, what the petition was if we're referring to a petition. Um, and I'd really like to try to find a permanent home on the internet somewhere for that, because I think that would be a wonderful resource um, 
you know, just to complement the book, but also um, as a resource for, for example, African-American families and genealogists um, in Beaufort County too. So that's, that's something sort of smaller I'm working on. Um, but I, I do have two other sort of projects, which I don't know if they will be article length or could be longer. We'll see. Um, but one of them, uh, both stem off from the book. Um, and one is to question the narrative of poverty that the white elite of the low country created um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, throughout these papers, they're constantly talking about how impoverished they are, how poor they are, how, how badly they're doing economically. But of course, there's a couple things that cast doubt on this. One, of course, are recent fascinating studies that show that the majority of enslaver families actually regained the same level of wealth that they had before the war within about two generations. So I, I sort of want to dig in and see what I can find about what, how that does or does not hold for the white elite of the low country, um, as well as thinking about whatever their degree of poverty, um, how this narrative of poverty, which they absolutely cultivate, plays into lost cause ideology and Jim Crow racism too. Um, because of course their argument there is that we are so poor because of the end of slavery. Um, and this is an unacceptable diminishment of our wealth and power. Um, so I, I'm starting to dig into that some just to sort of unpack um, those, you know, narratives that they, they craft. Uh, something else I, I'm working on too that I, I just gave a talk about at the Southern Labor Studies Association's conference um, was about how um, white Charlestonians and the white Charleston power structure used African-American convict labor to refurbish the Charleston landscape um, for tourists um, and for major sort of economic overhauls in the early 20th century. Um, so that's something else that I've started work on too. Oh, that's all so fascinating. And we'll track that here. But for the time being, the book again here is Hurricane Jim Crow, How the Great Sea Island Storm of 1893 Shaped the Low Country South. It's out today from University of North Carolina Press. Its author is, and my guest has been, Dr. Caroline Grego. Caroline, thank you so much for your time and for this book. And thank you so much, Brian. I had a great time talking with you. <laughs> 